Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is the third leading cause of death and disability in the United States. It's a chronic condition, it's progressive, and it has no cure. But if it's diagnosed early, it can be managed. How? Well, we're going to learn about that today. We have Dr. Samuel Evans from Straub Clinic. He's a pulmonologist with over two decades of experience. We have Valerie Chang from the Hawaii COPD Coalition. She's the founder, and she'll talk about what it personally feels like to have COPD. And we have Justina Baker. She's from the Rehab Hospital of the Pacific, and she's going to talk about a program of pulmonary rehabilitation. How do you get your lungs stronger, and what can you do if you have a diagnosis of emphysema or COPD? Now, as always, our show is your show, and if you or someone you love have has this particular problem, or if you've learned something about how to manage it that might be unique to our island lifestyle, you can definitely give us a holler. We can all learn from one another, and that's 941-3689 on Oahu and from our friends in the neighbor islands. 1-877-941-3689. Welcome, everybody, to The Body Show. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the basics. Dr. Evans, you know, we've got lungs. We've got two of them. Air comes in. We bring in oxygen. We exhale. Carbon dioxide comes out. It seems like such a fairly well-tuned, simple system. What happens when people have lung problems? When we talk about COPD, what exactly is going on in the lungs that's causing this obstruction? Well, COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And what happens is over time, if there's chronic airways inflammation, be that from smoking or other inhalational injuries, uh, it results in a damage to the airways in which the air doesn't flow well anymore. And we call that obstruction. The air just isn't getting out, in and out well. And so it's not like you're actually, there's not a mass in there that's in the way. It's just the idea that airflow and air currents aren't allowed to go where they should and that the lung's capacity to recoil, that elasticity, doesn't seem to be preserved the way that it was before. Exactly. If the airways are narrowed or um, there's closure of airways, then the air doesn't flow well and it gets trapped. And so patients are actually trapping air inside and hyperinflated. They can't get the air out. So then they have a hard time getting air in, and that results in shortness of breath. Is that the main symptom that people have? People have many different symptoms. I think the main one is shortness of breath, but patients can also have symptoms like cough and mucus, sometimes even chest tightness. Now, sometimes people use the words COPD, emphysema, and chronic bronchitis almost at the same time to, to describe the same condition, but there are slight differences. What, what are those? There are differences, and there can be overlap between the different syndromes. So there can be chronic bronchitis, most often seen in patients who were heavy smokers, um, emphysema, which uh, has a more predominance of airway closure and collapse with air trapping. Uh, there's bronchiectasis, in which the airways are dilated and damaged, and then patients may have components of chronic asthma in which the airways are responsive to medicines called bronchodilators. We'll talk about some of those medications in just a few moments. How does someone screen themselves for COPD? 
Well, most patients will have some symptoms, maybe shortness of breath with exertion or the cough and mucus like I mentioned. Perhaps there's a history of smoking. Or, or if you have an inherited genetic disorder, perhaps there's a family history. Um, the way we screen for COPD is with a simple breathing test called spirometry. And that's a test that can be done in the office. You don't have to go to a special lab to do it? No, not for a simple spirometry. It can be done in any kind of uh, physician, primary care's office. It take maybe 10 or 15 minutes of time to do correctly. And if you find that you do have some of the findings of this condition, then you can do more extensive testing with breathing or do any other type of testing you need. Exactly. So if the spirometry is abnormal, we'll uh, often send to the pulmonary function lab for more formal testing and uh, a more thorough evaluation. Valerie, let's talk for a few moments because you've been diagnosed with COPD. And Correct. you're unique in the fact that you don't have a history of any smoking, and that is one of the things that is associated with COPD. How did you know you had it? Well, I had unusual symptoms because I was waking up every night because I couldn't breathe, and I didn't know why, and I've never been exposed to even secondhand smoke or a lot of particulates. So they thought it was unusual, but my internist sent me to a pulmonary lab because he said, you know, there is no reason you should be having these problems. I just did a physical. You're in great shape, and you're perfectly healthy. Your heart is good. So you went to go do these tests, and what did you, what did you find out? The test showed that my lungs were only blowing out about a third of what a normal person my age and my height should be blowing out and my gender. Now, we often describe it's like breathing through a straw, and maybe that's my own interpretation of what it might be like to try and get air in and out and, and try and, and manage that. But what does it really feel like? It's more like stacked breathing where you take in a breath and you hold it, and then you take in another breath and you hold that, and then you take in a third breath and hold that. Okay, I don't want to do that. It's not very pleasant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that's more what it feels like than breathing through a straw even. My husband tried that. He goes, you know, that's really unpleasant. I said, yeah, it is. It is rather unpleasant. And so when you were diagnosed, you had a lot of these symptoms, this, this sensation when you were at night having trouble breathing. What about with exercise and activity? Did you have any limitations when you first found out? Yeah, because my friends who were, I thought, in worse shape than I were, was, were just racing ahead with my kids when we were at national parks, and I just couldn't keep up. And my husband goes, you look really awful. Just sit down. I'll move the car. And I said, you know, we got to find out what's going on. So I saw my internist, and he goes, you need to you know, go to the PFT lab, which I did, pulmonary function lab, and they did the more thorough breathing test, and then I saw pulmonologists like Dr. Evans. Now, how often does it take, Dr. Evans, between symptoms, identification, diagnosis? Is that process something where are a lot of doctors missing COPD? I read some statistics that a lot of folks, in fact, more than half don't even know they have it. What are we missing? What is someone in my position as a primary care provider missing as far as symptoms to indicate that someone might be having this problem? Yeah, so patients may be okay at rest. So if they're relatively sedentary, they may not be experiencing a lot of shortness of breath. 
Um, so I, I usually pin them down and say, well, when you're carrying the groceries or you're climbing flights of stairs, are you having to stop and take a break to catch your breath? And so getting the history teased out can be a challenge. And also in some patients, you know, cardiac disease can present with very similar symptoms as COPD, and so we can be fooled. So it can be a challenge to um, get a good history to suspect it, but um, we know nationally that we don't screen nearly as many patients as we should be screening. And so if you have a patient with a pretty significant smoking history or a family history of COPD, you should consider screening. Well, and, our, and our website does have a, a simple population like a screener. Sure. It's a questionnaire, and it it's a COPD population screener on hawaiicopd.org, and they can, anyone can take it and just take the results to their doctor and say, you know, should I follow up on this? Should we get a test? Sure. And You know, if you meet some there. of those criteria, if you have some of those symptoms. What are some of the symptoms that are on your questionnaire? Do you know? Yeah, it's it's your age. If you're older, you're more likely to have it. If you have a history of sputum where you have mucus. Coughing up mucus. Coughing okay. up mucus, mucus three to- for three months for more than two years in a row. Um, if you... Um, have a history of smoking, um, and you have a history of breathlessness, especially if you're doing less activity than you used to because you're afraid of being breathless. So some people become couch potatoes just because they don't want to be breathless. And they're like, I'm fine as long as I don't move. (laughs) That's true. You know, and I think for a lot of different medical conditions, whether it be like you mentioned, Dr. Sam, you know, cardiovascular issues, that also can can be something where people might say, but I'm never I'm never having any chest pain because I walk from my house to the car and then to my office and it's minimal distance and I don't have any problems at all. And then you put them on a treadmill and you're amazed at how much trouble they have. But it's only because they just haven't been that active up until then. I'm curious, Justina, you're coming from Rehab Hospital of the Pacific. You're doing some of the pulmonary rehab with people who have this diagnosis. What do you often see when people first come in to see you as far as their symptoms are concerned? And what do you do to help them feel better? Sure. Um, So, yeah, it's a vast difference of people who come into our program Um, from different demographics, uh, age, very young to very old. So they present in different ways. Um, So we do have folks that come in who um, they they may be feeling more breathless. They may rate on the dyspnea scale. That's the shortness of breath scale that we use. It's a subjective measurement. And they may rate that slightly higher. And as they go through the program and as we slowly progress them, they, they notice that they have less breathlessness. So we use, um, obviously, purse-lip breathing and some diaphragmatic um, deep belly breathing techniques to really try to coach them on the proper ways that they should be breathing during exercise. And that tends to kind of calm their nerves a little bit. And uh, I think they respond and tolerate the exercise better. So the idea is to incorporate other ways to help them with their breathing that can help the lungs. Exactly. And then also at the same time, increase their endurance so that by the end of the program, how, how long is the program? So our program, the pulmonary program runs 13 sessions long. And yeah. that's once a week, twice a week? We encourage two times per week. So we do Tuesday, currently we're doing Tuesday and Thursday appointments, um, mostly in the morning from 8 to 12. And these sessions can run up to 60 minutes, but we gradually build the patients up to that so that we're not starting them too, too fast too soon. 
So over the course of essentially like six to eight weeks or so, yes, someone correct. is able to go from I have a diagnosis, I'm having symptoms, to even now I feel more comfortable when I exercise. Mm-hmm. You may not be certainly not a 10K or marathoner at that point, but hey, you might be able to know what your comfort zone is. Yeah, I think everyone comes in with different goals. So that's the, I think, the exciting thing for each one of us as we work with them. So we're a multidisciplinary team. We consist of nurses, exercise physiologists, and also exercise exercise specialist, uh, personal trainers who work with the patients individually and in a group setting. So it's kind of fun to get to know them and, and really decide what are their goals for the program and how can we try to help them reach them by the end of the 13 sessions. Yeah. Now, this is a relatively new program? It is. We just started last September. So it'll be a year this September. Yeah. And how many folks have been through it so far? So we've had, um, I would say, about 30 or so. Mm-hmm. So slow start. Um, but we're hoping to really ramp things up within this next year. So we're really trying to get ourselves out into the community and just expose the program because it's something that's much needed. Absolutely. I think the initial part of that is making sure that people are getting identified and diagnosed and then seeing the appropriate doctors they need to and having them find out, hey, listen, there's this great program at rehab. If you want to learn how to improve your physical level of functioning and breathe better, this is something that is definitely a possibility for you. Now, there's always the logistics. Insurance covers it or no? It does, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, that's not an excuse. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why are they not there? So definitely, yeah, take advantage of the insurance that's covering for it. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you were to just say, okay, so I get breathless sometimes, and yeah, I cough a little bit, and I want to know if I have COPD. And let's say you go to see your primary care provider, or you see a pulmonologist, you do the testing, you get the diagnosis. Dr. Evans, what happens after that initial evaluation? Are there varying degrees of severity? Does everybody get put on inhalers right away? What are some of the steps of how we handle this? That's a great question. And there are varying steps of of severity. And there are cla- there's agencies in, in the nation that classify them. The most popular is the gold classification series, which most of us use. And so, yeah, usually I'll take the patient's pulmonary function test and I'll look at the numbers with the patient and I'll explain to them, this is where I think you're at. I think you have mild, moderate, or severe, or even very severe COPD. And then we'll begin a a plan for treatment. And uh, we're really blessed in this day and age because we have so many therapeutic options that decades ago I don't think we had. And so the inhaled medications are very effective and with um, minimal side effects and problems. They're well tolerated, and, and we have a lot we can do for the patients. Let's talk about some of those inhalers because over the years of practice, and I've been in practice longer than I want to admit, mm-hmm. I have witnessed some really interesting ways that people use inhalers. And by interesting, I mean absolutely incorrect. Very well-intentioned with the best of all thoughts. I remember seeing one woman sort of spray it in the air and gulp her mouth open as if she was somehow getting the medicine from the air. And she really thought she was doing wonderful. And, you know, you can only try and educate someone a little bit more about how to use them. Inhalers have some basic principles. How do you explain to folks, granted, we can't do a demo here on radio, but how do you explain to folks how to use some of the standard inhalers? Uh, it's such an important question, and uh, I actually take the time to show each of my patients how to use their inhaler. 
And, and to tell you the truth, you, you have to really look carefully at the patient. I don't always use meter dose inhalers. If I have an elderly patient with advanced dementia or severe arthritis in their hands, they're not going to be able to activate that, that pump. And so I may nebulize medications for those kind of patients. And so I try to tailor it to the patient, but I always will take the inhaler with the patient. I'll use a, a placebo one myself, and I'll demonstrate the correct way to use it. Um, very often, if it's a mist inhaler, I'm using what's called a spacer. It's a device uh, that makes it easier for the patient to put the medication into this chamber, and they don't have to worry about the timing of inhalation. They don't have to gulp at the air or sniff at the air um, to get the medication in. So, yeah, it, it's a these these medicines are expensive, and we want to make sure that the delivery is correct and that they're not wasting it, and it, it's effective. So a spacer is a really good device if you're worried about the coordination of getting the machine, getting the medicine from the pump, the meter dose inhaler to your to your lungs. A spacer is, you know, some people describe them as kind of a crimped edge kind of tube. I remember in the old days we used to say it's like the cardboard on a toilet paper roll when the toilet paper is all gone. But don't use that. You need something else. But it was sort of a way to help someone to be able to get in that deep breath and not worry about trying to perfectly coordinate that inhalation. Val, you've used inhalers. Yeah. And actually another um, person that can really help is the pharmacist. They are trained to help look at the patient's technique and say, yeah, you're doing it right. You're not doing it right. Because they might see the pharmacist more often than they see their doctors. I mean, we have to use all the tools that are available. And at our um, education day, we'll have respiratory therapy students to go over the technique with anybody that brings in their inhalers. Sure, well. and that's the other key is talk to your doctor, talk to your pulmonologist, talk to your pharmacist, talk to respiratory therapist. And at, at pulmonary yeah. rehab. <clears throat> yeah, that's actually one of the things that we cover. It's a comprehensive program, so we include the education, the exercise, and the support all bundled together. So that's actually one of the really great benefits for the patients is that they get to fine-tune those skills, what they learned, hopefully, from their physician, from the respiratory therapists. And we go over it, and we also we show visual demonstrations so in person, but then also using video too. So it tends to work out well because I think people learn in different ways. So it's it's cool if you can just try to do you know anything you can to try to you know help that patient out. Absolutely, yeah. that is the goal. All right. Well, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio, and joining me today is Dr. Samuel Evans. He is an expert pulmonologist working at Straub Clinic, my home base. We also have Valerie Chang from the Hawaii COPD Coalition and Justina Baker from Rehab Hospital of the Pacific, and she's talking about pulmonary rehabilitation. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about this diagnosis of COPD and what are these different types of medicines and what are some of the new advances that have come out. Plus, we're going to mention the number one most important thing that you can do if you have this diagnosis. So do stay with us. We'll be right back after this quick break. In the morning, I have my juice, my toast, and the BBC. In the evenings, especially Saturdays and Sundays, I, I like Seth Marcos' show. Um, I love American Roots. If I'm in the mood for classical music, again, I can just push the other button and listen to it. If I'm driving, it seems like whatever's on is good. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. The magic 
was always in the new pair of shoes. There was still plenty of magic, and shoes like these could jump you over trees and rivers and houses. The perfect shoes. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m. Following travel with Rick Steves. Support for the Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to the Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Samuel Evans, pulmonary specialist from Straub Clinic, Valerie Chang from the Hawaii COPD Coalition, and Justina Baker from Rehab Hospital of the Pacific. And today we're talking about COPD. If you or a loved one happens to have this diagnosis, or if you have a question about whether or not your inhalers are the types that you, you should be using the way you are, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. Now, before the break, I went ahead and said, what is the number one most important thing you can do if you have a diagnosis of COPD? So I've got my idea, and that may not be the only idea, so we're going to do a little round table discussion. Dr. Evans, what do you think is the most important thing you can do if you have a diagnosis of COPD? If you smoke, stop smoking now. All right. You and I are thinking alike. I'm going to throw smoking out there as one of the first things you can do. Obviously, if you smoke, you're right. Because Valerie, you were never, never a smoker. Smoked. So what do you think is the most important thing? You and Justina may just match. Work mm. closely with your health yeah. pro- care professionals and exercise. exercise All right, yeah. Justina, that's, that's what you right. said, exercise. Yeah. I'm a little biased. Exercise physiologist. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but Val, you brought up a good point. You're like, so exercise so you don't gain weight when you quit smoking. It kind of can all work together, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. I mean, nothing is in a vacuum. And actually, you'll feel better and your lungs work better and you need your oxygen is used more efficiently if you're exercising. Well, very true. And then if you learn how to breathe better, you're going to feel better. And if you don't have that sense of breathlessness, then you're more likely to go out and do exercise and activity and not have somebody have to bring the car up everywhere you go. And you don't get isolated. It's, you know. Use it or lose it. That's what yeah, they say. I think oftentimes p- people just think that you're supposed to exercise certain muscle groups, your major muscle groups, um, which is great. But I think they forget that your respiratory muscles also have to be you know, exercised. So that's kind of in- an interesting thing to educate the patients on is just teaching them why it's so important to breathe efficiently and, and how that's going to um, obviously improve your quality of life and reduce some of the symptoms. So you mentioned diaphragmatic breathing. Mm -hmm. What could someone at home do to find out if they're using their diaphragm to help them to breathe? Are there any physical signs? What could they check on themselves? Well, I I would say that probably most people don't do that type of breathing. I don't know. I'd probably ask you guys, too, to see what your opinions are. Um, A lot of times, I don't think that people quite understand what that is. Okay, so so what is that? And so (laughs) it's a, a deep belly breathing. A lot of times... Patients, uh, people, they use accessory muscles to actually breathe. So a lot of times you even see people um, hiking Shrugging their shoulders. Shrugging their shoulders exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah. Sucking in air. Yep. So so belly breathing or diaphragmatic yeah. breathing, how would that look different? So the way that we actually coach our patients 
And it's really difficult at first, but we give illustrations to send home with them so they can practice it lying down, standing up, or sitting in a chair. And we would have them, we'd instruct them to put one hand on their chest and one down. Um, okay, we're all going to do near this. their belly button. We're all yeah, sitting here, <laughs> we're going to do a demo. <laughs> Why not? So one hand on our chest, one hand on our gut. Yeah. And so actually, people sometimes think that when you're inhaling, you must inhale as well, but it's not the case. So inhalation and then out and then opposite. So, so what's opposite? What's going so there? So you're breathing Who's in, but your gut? stomach what? is going out. Right. That's so you right. breathe in, but the stomach goes out. Correct. Okay. But I think that concept is opposite for people because they sometimes, even when lifting weights in, in the gym, let's say, they do incorrect technique when breathing. We hear that often. Actually, because what do they do that's wrong? Yeah. Well, babies and singers know how to do diaphragmatic breathing. Right. I sure. mean, if you watch babies yeah. breathe, mm-hmm. they breathe correctly. Yep. Mm-hmm. And their stomachs go way out yeah. and come way back in. Mm-hmm. Nobody needs to teach them. But then after a while, people don't want their stomach to go out. So mm-hmm. then they stop doing it. And then they just breathe through their chest. Right. So if you're lifting weights, because you had asked the question. so Yeah, how do you do it wrong? You're right. at the gym, so you see if people. You're, yeah, with forceful um, exertion, you should be actually exhaling. And I think a lot of times people inhale. So you're supposed to be exhaling all of that air out, let's say. So when you push the weight, Mm -hmm. that's exhalation and you inhale when you retract. Exactly. Yeah, so I think it's just retraining people and trying to figure out how can they understand the best technique. Well, and like paying attention. Paying attention, You know, because, I mean, when you're at the gym, you're probably, I mean, when I get there, I'm so excited I showed up to begin with that I'm like, yay for me. So, okay, what can I do? Yeah, and it's involuntary, so we don't think about it. We're not thinking about how we're supposed to be (laughs) breathing right. right. A lot of us hold our breath, too. Yep, exactly. When when we're Mm -hmm. exerting, instead of remembering consciously to Mm -hmm. exhale with exertion, but that is what we're supposed to do. So yeah. with exertion, exhale. Yes. Exactly. Exhale okay. with exertion. Mm-hmm. So exertion begins yeah. with an E. Exhale <laughs> begins <laughs> with an E. Yeah. E Perfect. squared. Perfect. Okay. Yep. I'm feeling smarter already. There you go. Okay. So how you breathe is just as important as how if you're using your medications correctly. We kind of agree with you got to quit smoking if you are a smoker. You can't be fearing the exercise. We talked a little bit about inhalers uh, right before the break. Dr. Evans, what are some of the basic inhalers that we're talking about? Because, you know, it's a little different. I remember when it used to be that everybody would just use a beta agonist, an albuterol or proventol, or, you know, you can call it any one of those pro-air, and that's all they would use. But now there's long-acting medicines, there's anticholinergic medicines, what are some of the basic medicines people would start with when they have a diagnosis of COPD with maybe mild to moderate symptoms? What sorts of things might they start using? So the two most common classes would be the beta agonists, which you mentioned, short-acting, like albuterol, or long-acting, like one called salmeterol. And then the other class is called anticholinergics. And so these can be short-acting also, like an atrovent, or a long-acting, such as a spireba, which is a commonly used one, teotropium. So also in addition to the the beta agonists and the anticholinergics, which are bronchodilators, there's also anti-inflammatory medications, inhaled corticosteroids, such as a fluticasone. Um, In addition to that, there's newer anti-inflammatory oral medications that some patients take, and uh, one of the newer ones is rofumulast. So there's combinations of all of these. It can get a little confusing for some patients and even practitioners. Um, But we have 
some pretty evidence-based, pretty good evidence-based guidelines for how we should be using these things. And so the idea is that if you can help someone to physically feel like they're breathing better, then they may be more likely to do exercise and activity. But there's also the idea that if they can breathe better, they're less likely to get sick. Some of these medications try and help prevent what we call COPD exacerbations, when suddenly the breathlessness just kind of catches up on someone and they need stronger medicines either in an emergency setting or in the hospital or even those at home. So the concept is to help make someone feel better with their breathing, but actually to reduce these episodes of exacerbations. What causes an exacerbation? Might somebody be in a situation where they're exposed to someone who's sick or could weather changes bring that on as well? Sure. There's there's many different causes. Some patients may simply walk by a bus and inhale a bunch of exhaust fumes by accident. Or maybe somebody's exposed to someone's secondhand smoke. Maybe the VOG is particularly bad for a couple of days. Uh, and then more common causes would be someone catches a virus or upper respiratory tract infection. And also common could be a, a mild community-acquired pneumonia or bronchitis. So when we talk about these things, how important is it for people who have a diagnosis of COPD or really any lung condition to get flu shots and pneumonia shots? Is that really one of those things they just, it's a must Absolutely. I, I recommend that to all of my patients with lung trouble, you know, that they have their annual flu shot and depending on their age that they get their pneumococcal vaccinations every five years. And actually flu shots are available. I'm getting mine Friday. Yep, we have them in the office, and a lot of the pharmacies do too. So it's not just about hepatitis A shots these days, everybody. You can also get your flu shot because that's another really important thing. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, is it too early to get your flu shot? And I, you know, I generally say, listen, get it as soon as you can because if you wait too long, then you may actually wind up getting exposed to someone who's sick already. Or you could get sick, and we generally try not to give people shots to prevent something when they're dealing with another illness. What are your suggestions, Dr. Evans? Yeah, I mean, while we may see the majority of the cases in, in the dead of winter, in December, January, February, we see sporadic cases in the fall and, and even out until the spring. And so I, I think getting it early is a good idea. Most of the patients that I see, you know, don't have a lot of pulmonary reserve. And so you get a influenza pneumonia on top of that, and you could wind up in the hospital. And hopefully survive that hospital stay. Yeah. Now it's hurricane season, and everybody wants to know what should they do to prepare. And we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, what if there is a hurricane warning? What kind of medicines do you need to think about if you have COPD? Because where you're going may not have power. So what what would be in your emergency kit? Val, I bet you have one. An emergency kit, should there be a hurricane that you know, hey, I've got to make sure I bring X, Y, and Z if I have to evacuate? What, what's in your kit? The main thing I have is several months' worth of medication, just in case, because the pharmacies might be closed or I might be far from a pharmacy. So I have my inhaled medicines. Um, I have um, oxygen because I do need oxygen. I'm not sure how that's going to go. I'm going to have to call my provider and say where I'm going to evacuate to so that they can find a permanent address to deliver more oxygen because 
the oxygen I have would only probably last about 36 hours. But by then they should be able to find me and give me the rest of the oxygen I need. Um, I would think you would just evacuate to a hospital now because then we have the oxygen everywhere. No, I don't, be okay. I don't you like don't hospitals do because right. there's a lot of sick people there. I That's don't true. need to get new That's diseases. That's true. And don't go where the germs are. Actually, okay. I think hospitals will be overwhelmed with people that have more urgent medical needs. So I think the provider has already told me this morning when I called that as long as we can tell them, and I have the the cell phone number of the tech guy. So the I respiratory can, therapy I can, department. Okay. I can send them a text as to where I am permanently going to be when I'm, um, when I'm uh, relocating and he will make sure that I get oxygen. So other than that, I think I'm pretty good. I do have also a course of antibiotics and a course of oral steroids just in case I have a flare up, which hopefully won't happen, but you never know. Well, and that's the other key is, you know, and a lot of people who have moderate to severe and very severe COPD, you can't wait. If you get sick, you can't sit at home saying, I think it'll get better next week. You need to have an arsenal of something to take and or know when your limits have been reached and you need to go see your, your health care provider to make sure that you're treated pretty, pretty quickly because you don't have a long reserve. Dr. Evans, what do you tell patients? I mean, I know Valerie, her pulmonologist, tells her, you know, hold on to steroids, hold on to antibiotics, only use them if you have to. And I know, Val, she's not going to take those medicines unless she really needs to. What are some of the words of wisdom and guidance you give to some of the folks that you see that may have that moderate or even severe COPD? What can they do to have to keep themselves protected? Aside from the vaccinations, I do tell my patients, you know, if they're experiencing a change from their baseline, meaning if they have cough and white mucus usually and all of a sudden it's green or bloody, that they should be calling me. Or if they're more short of breath or wheezy than their baseline, they should be calling me. And I tell them, call me early before it turns into a pneumonia and you end up in the hospital. And I do give my patients usually a five to seven day prescription for an antibiotic and an oral corticosteroid to keep in their medicine cabinet in case it's a holiday or a weekend and they can't get a hold of anybody. Then I tell them, if you're having these things, you can't get a hold of anyone, just go ahead and start it and call me as soon as you can. Sure, because the people who who we worry about using too many antibiotics generally are not the ones who have a serious lung disease that require antibiotics. You know, so although sometimes people are worried about self-treatment, honestly, for most lung patients, you kind of know when you're going downhill. And as long as you don't wait too long, there are some things you could do early on. And if you start medication and you're still not better, get in to see your doctor like yesterday. It's absolutely important. Now, I'm curious, Justina, in the course of this six to eight weeks, I bet some of the people who come in for pulmonary rehab get sick. What do you tell someone to do with their exercise when they've started to develop a lung infection? Yeah, so that's actually a a good point to bring up. We do have several patients who, if they come down with something, they're not feeling well. It's something serious, and it's relating to their lungs. We do tell them to make sure that they do contact their physician and lay off the exercise. Just, you know, don't come in. Take a pass. I think sometimes people... They think we're going to take it personally, but <laughs> we just we just let them know that it's okay. You know, there's going to be another day, and, and the most important thing is just trying to get them better. 
Sure, and you wouldn't yeah. want somebody coming in sick. Exactly. And then, unfortunately, here's this other group of, like Val, you mentioned earlier, I don't want to go to a hospital with sick people. Well, it's a highly susceptible population. That's right. So best to stay home when you're sick and not spread whatever infection you may have acquired to the other folks who are trying to work on their exercise. That's right. Now, Dr. Evans, people who have COPD can still be working. And when they get sick, should they stay home? I recommend they do. Um, I, like uh, Justina just mentioned, you know, I, I tell them to, to lay low and take it easy, take their medications, use their nebulizer if they feel they need to use that. Um, and if they're not getting better in three or four days, then I ask them to come in and see me and usually I'll get an x-ray, make sure we don't, we're not dealing with a pneumonia. Well, and I think a lot of times people have the same thought that you mentioned, Justina. I don't want to disappoint anybody. Mm. I'll just... You know, I'll just go even though I don't feel well. And I think, unfortunately, we underutilize. We appropriately uh, don't necessarily, well, most people, I would hope, don't use sick leave enough when they're sick. I see people come in all the time and they're already sick and they say, well, I had to show up or else I'd be docked or I'd be put on probation or whatever. And I'm like, wow. So you just showed up, shared all your germs, and now everyone else around you is going to get sick. You probably should have stayed home. COPD would be one of those qualifying illnesses, dare I even suggest more paperwork, for FMLA, I would imagine. If you have a chronic serious illness that is progressive over the course of a year, that has intermittent exacerbations, that often require prescription medicine, that is the definition of the appropriate utilization of FMLA. Absolutely. I mean, I have patients that are in and out of the emergency room. They're admitted three or four times to the hospital each year, severe exacerbations, even respiratory failure. And, and these patients do deserve the leave. They need it. Well, they need it, honestly, to stay alive. So it's one of those things where if you have these conditions, please, if you get sick, don't go to the pulmonary rehab. And Justina's <laughs> like, no, don't come here. But also don't infect poor people like Val, who's like, I don't want to be around people who are sick. I'm very susceptible. And uh, do take good care of yourself, because that's really what it's truthfully all about and what we're trying to discuss today. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. We are time for another break. Dr. Samuel Evans is here from Straub Clinic. He is a pulmonary expert, Valerie Chang from the Hawaii COPD Coalition, Justina Baker from Rehab Hospital at Pacific, talking about pulmonary rehab. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about what happens when you need oxygen, who nebulizes medicines and who doesn't, and what are the different types of ways that we can really help people with lung disease make the most of keeping them active and healthy as much as possible. Now, as always, our show is your show, and you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. If you or a loved one has COPD, let us know if there's anything that people have done that have helped support you in your journey so that we can share that information with other folks along the way. We can all help one another here. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. See what makes Havana so intriguing. In a sense, the city was trapped in time. Visit places important to American history. It's hard to imagine being a citizen in a democracy without having some knowledge of history. And decide what kind of community you really want to live in. The question to me is, where do you want to live? Do you want to live in Bedford Falls or do you want to live in Potterville? On the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. 
On August the 27th, the Atherton Studio is your portal to the rich cultures and folk music traditions of the lands from Mexico to Argentina. Enjoy corridos, boleros, cumbias, tangos, and more. Make your reservations at hprtickets.org or at 955-8821 during regular business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ulupono Initiative, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Samuel Evans, pulmonary expert practicing for over two decades. He's currently at Straub Clinic and Hospital, Valerie Chang from the Hawaii COPD Coalition, and Justina Baker from Rehab Hospital of the Pacific. And if you've ever wondered, what do we talk about during the break? Well, we just had a very interesting discussion on electronic cigarettes. You know, so we'll talk about nebulizers and oxygen in just a few moments. But, you know, one of the mainstays of treating uh, people who have this lung condition is to try and get them to stop smoking if they are smoking. And again, not all smokers get COPD. Not all COPD individuals have a smoking history. But there's such a strong correlation that often those two things come together. So smoking is an addictive type of behavior, and it's not so simple to just suddenly stop and say, I'm never going to smoke again. And some people can, but very few can actually be that successful with just making one statement like that. So there are some ways that we have tried to figure out how to reduce the dependence on nicotine. And over the years, some of the ways we've tried to do that is to develop nicotine replacements. So we've talked about, you know, nicotine gum. People have heard about the patch. People have heard about other ways to get the nicotine, which is the addictive component in cigarettes, without getting those other 200 chemicals or toxins that we know are in most cigarettes that are commercially made. However, there's a new, new product on the market probably for the last couple of years, and that's electronic cigarettes. And good or bad, it's something that is a substitute for nicotine. And, you know, Val, you have one thought on it. And Dr. Evans, it sounds like you may have another thought. So let's let's hear what you have to say. My potentially naive thought on electronic cigarettes is that there's probably a lot fewer chemicals than in traditional tobacco cigarettes. And so if you have to find a way to wean yourself from tobacco cigarettes. Electronic cigarettes may be a way to do that. But these days we're seeing some people go right to e-cigs. They're not even smoking tobacco. They're just choosing a different habit. And if you're going from I don't smoke anything to I smoke something, there is always that question as to whether or not you should smoke anything at all. Dr. Evans, your thoughts on electronic cigarettes? Well, I have had patients come to me and say, hey, doc, I quit smoking. And I congratulate them, and then I see the e-cigarette thing in their pocket. And so, what is that? Oh, this is what I'm using now. And so, really, they're just using one other device to get the nicotine. Um, preliminarily, studies do show that there is some airways inflammation from these devices. We don't have a great deal of data yet, but we have enough data now that the FDA just slapped some pretty heavy regulations on these items. And so I can't call them safe. I don't know what the chemicals are, these flavorings that people are inhaling. And if they, they have carcinogenous you know, we factors, don't know. we just don't know. It's too soon to tell. 
And so I'm not advocating for them. I'm using traditional medications like bupropion and uh, varinecline Chantix with nicotine replacement like patches or gums right now. Okay. And Val, you had a very interesting take on it. You're like, how do you know what's in the e-cigarette is nicotine? Actually, the, the high schools have been finding that people put all kinds of things in the it's something I wouldn't have thought cigarette, of. <laughs> and it's, I'm not it's, that creative. You don't know what's being exhaled at you. And and the other thing is the, the quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW, will help anyone that wants counseling on quitting, and they'll help give either free patches or gum to anyone. And I think that that is the tried and true method of actually being able to quit. There are a lot of studies that show that people don't actually quit on e-cigarettes because they can't reliably know what's in the juice that they're putting in, even if they're putting in the official juice that's supposed to go in the electronic cigarette. So like Dr. Evans said, you know, there's a lot more study that needs to be done if they're going to claim that it's actually supposed to help people quit. And actually, they're not making that claim. And they don't want to be regulated by FDA, but FDA is deciding that it does need to be regulated. Well, and once they decide to regulate it, then there's a lot of rules, and then there's also the benefit of consistency and what's in the product, and then further studies that are being done about safety, et cetera. So certainly it's it's a newer development that is that has muddied the waters in the world of, of smoking and uh, the use of tobacco versus electronic cigarettes. We've got a caller on the line. We have Ralph from Cunia. Ralph, welcome to The Body Show. Mm-hmm. Hello, Hello there. Yes. Hello. Hello, what can we do for you today? Yes, uh, it's just Dr. Herman. Herman? No, I'm sorry. I just wrote down Dr. Name, and I, you may you may not be Dr. Herman. My name is Ralph. I have had COPD, and I've had uh, COPD for uh, a little over five years. I've been taking Spiriva and and all those stuff, uh, and everything went well except the last. And ten months, I developed uh, a rash coming from the inside out, and it occurs all over my body. And uh, we've been treating it with uh, steroids. Uh, what do you call those? Yeah, you're right, steroids. Prednisone. Yeah. Prednisone. Yep. Yes, and it completely knocks it out from from being uh, from being itchy, but. Uh, the minute I stop, it grows back again. And I've been on prednisone since last year, December. And every time it runs out, it comes back again. Only now, it's coming back in big red blotches instead of mounds and and leaking uh, uh, stories looking like. Well, Ralph, I'm so sorry to hear that that's happened to you. It sounds like you know, you've done well with your COPD. At least you've been taking your inhalers consistently. You mentioned Spiriva, which is one of those anticholinergics that we talked about earlier. And you've done your best. And sometimes when people get these sort of allergic reactions to things or these spots and dots you describe, you know, if prednisone fixes it, we know that it has to do with your immune system. And your immune system is reacting to something that you're exposed to. And every time you stop the prednisone, boy, that immune system just goes haywire and goes wild. 
Yeah, I, I'm certain that your doctors have tried extensively to figure out what might yeah, be contributing so to that. So it could be something like a better metazone, one percent, and then a, the second time they gave me a more heavier doses of that metazone. It does not seem to help. Well, it's really hard because when you're in the middle of this episode, sometimes what happens is that the type of testing and tools that we could consider using to try and determine why you get the rash, when your immune system is activated, it's going to react to every test that we do. So there may not be a specific way to figure out what exactly caused this rash. But ironically, one of the things that happens when you take all of these steroids, now we're talking about the pills and not necessarily the topical cream, although there is some level of absorption, is that it may actually be making your COPD feel a little better. You might actually feel like the steroids helped your breathing, which is kind of a good thing. But at the same time, chronic long-term use of steroids, not such a good plan. Dr. Evans, you know, sometimes when people are bad enough, we give them medicines like prednisone and we give them steroids to take in pills. But that's only reserved for sort of worst case scenarios. Is that right? That's right. We try to avoid the systemic steroids because of the long-term side effects, osteopenia, bruising in the skin, cataracts, increased risk of fractures. Um, it, the list goes on and on, including weight gain, water retention. And so we, we don't want people to be on chronic steroids. If I have someone who's dependent on steroids, I may try adjunctive medications such as Rofumilast, which is an anti-inflammatory that's not a steroid, or I, I may try a steroid-sparing agent, a different kind of medicine, such as methotrexate, and, does it, and sometimes a, another medicine, azathioprine, imuran, to see if I can get the patient off the systemic steroid. Because, you know, in this case, Ralph may be using it for his skin condition, but regardless, the long-term effects of steroid use are the same no matter what you're using it for. So one of the things that can be given to folks that we talked about briefly earlier was inhaled steroids, that sometimes as the anti-inflammatory component, you can use these in some medications that might sound familiar, Advair, Simbicort, Dulera. These are combination medicines that involve that long-acting airway opener, that beta agonist, but also a steroid as well for those moderate to severe cases where they need that combination effect. So that there are some different inhalers that can be used in order to avoid chronically using steroid pills and for those po people who have serious problems, you mentioned some other options for them as well. Those other infl non-steroid inflammatory mediator medications as well. Absolutely. And, and also sometimes I'll even nebulize the steroid. Instead of uh, giving the systemic pill, I'll just nebulize budesonide. And, and sometimes that's enough. Now, when we talk about nebulizers, some people have a concept in their head as to what that does. How much stronger is a nebulizer than a standard inhaler? That's a tough question. I don't know that I can give you an exact you know, number for that, but clearly much, much greater delivery of the medication in an aerosol compared to the inhaler. So you get more of the medicine. For sure. So if you're not using your inhaler correctly, this could be great for you if you have a medical condition, whether it be a tremor or arthritis or you're unable to use an inhaler correctly. It's definitely going to be stronger. And so for those folks who need nebulizers, do you need to have a certain, do you need to meet certain criteria to keep a nebulizer at home? 
Not necessarily, but I, I these are usually my more moderately severe to severe patients that have that I recommend a home nebulizer. Uh, some patients even have battery-powered nebulizer that they take on trips with them because they really need their nebulizer, or they can't use meter dose inhalers. You know, they they met they nebulize all their medications. And Val, you've been in a situation where you've had to travel, had to make oxygen arrangements, had to make arrangements for other medications. It can be done, but it's not that easy. Is that right? <clears throat> all you need to do is plan. Plan does take planning. And actually, you can buy a travel nebulizer with Stat Medical. They're the only place in town that sells a travel nebulizer. But their travel nebulizer doesn't, unfortunately, use batteries, but it will operate off the car or off of a a standard outlet. And it's only like a pound, so it's much lighter and smaller than the standard tabletop nebulizer. So that there are some options. If you plan ahead, you could bring a nebulizer, you could have oxygen, you could manage. You still travel at times. I travel 30,000, 40,000 miles a year. Wow. You've dwarfed me already. <laughs> 30,000, 40,000 miles. I'm like, oh, you must have great airline miles. All right. <laughs> so let's talk about this upcoming conference. All three of you are going to be there participating. Actually, all four of us are going to be there participating in various capacities to really help educate folks about COPD. This is a free event. Val, you've put this on for 10 years. This is the 10th annual event. Tell me about COPD Education Day. It's uh, an event that we provide free for the public so that everyone can learn more about COPD. We have patients, caregivers, the general public, healthcare providers, and all the respiratory therapy students at Kapiolani Community College will be on hand as well. And they will do one-on-one help for every patient learning how to use their medications correctly. So I think that that's a real service. So this is an event that takes place, and it's free, and where and when? It's going to be at Queen's Conference Center on Saturday, September 17th from 9 to 2, and we will provide free refreshments, and um, there will be exhibits and demonstrations and handouts and prizes. Prizes. Yeah, yeah, and actually we have a free bento lunch as well, but we do remind people that it is cold there, so please bring a jacket. Well, and you want people to pre-register because there is limited space. Yes. Pre-registration okay. is available online, and the brochures are available online, and they're also at all public libraries on Oahu. So some of the talks that people are going to have, Better Breathers Group Workout, Justina, you're going to lead that event. That's right. Being active in advocacy with COPD, Valerie, that's going to be you. Uh, Dr. Evans, your buddy, Dr. Crawley is going to be there, your best life with COPD. We're going to hear from some other folks about which inhaler is right for me, how to know about the different types of oxygen delivery systems available. That's a whole nother element, portable oxygen. You know, I see folks that sometimes have the need for oxygen, and yet they don't seem to have the body strength to be able to carry those big tanks. There's new portable methods now, Val. Is that right? Correct. And um, Larry Pellerito is flying in from Arizona to talk about those and have them on hand for people to see what they're like. And also, we will have a speaker on life and happiness from Happiness University, Alice Inouye. And we will have a person that has had a double lung transplant and is now an athlete and doing triathlons. Wow. So if anybody thought there was an excuse to not exercise, <laughs> this person had a double lung transplant and they're still active. 
And so the rest of us have to get going. I bet just, just, you know, you're smiling like, uh huh, that's what I'm talking about. That's what we do. That's right. Now, if people want to hear more about the Rehab Hospitals Pulmonary Rehabilitation Program, where can they get that information? Well, stop by. Just come right by. Come to a Rehab Hospital of the Pacific. Um, but you can also, you can call our number directly. Um, talk to your pulmonologists, your PCPs. Um, try to just start that conversation to see what is out there, what type of education is offered to them and what type of ex- exercise programs there are. And what they'll find is that we're the only one. So <laughs> it will be, it'll be, uh, it'll be a quick enlight- discussion. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But that's, <laughs> that's all they really need to do. So we just require a referral from a PCP uh, or pulmonologist to get into the program. And who qualifies? Anybody who has COPD or is it specific to you have to be moderate or severe or what are the criteria? We do break it out so that it is moderate, severe. Um, There's actually a category for that on the referral sheet that the the physician will actually sign prior to sending it to our clinic. Um, So, yeah, we do mostly have COPD is the primary diagnosis that we see. But it could be somebody who has mild COPD exactly. who mm-hmm. wants to still figure out how to do activity and feel safe when they're exercising. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. So lots of different options for them. Dr. Evans, we talked about quitting smoking, using inhalers correctly, and making sure people get appropriate immunizations. Checking in when they're sick to make sure that they don't let too many days go by between when they start to have symptoms and when they come on in and get checked out. Now, you're a specialist, a pulmonary specialist. When would someone need to see you as opposed to just seeing someone like me? I'm a primary care provider and I don't have the same specialty knowledge. When should I send my folks to you? For people out there who may have COPD, when do they need you? Yeah, I I think the the general internist or practitioner can handle most patients with COPD. I think if the patient's having frequent exacerbations, ER visits, hospitalizations, or you you think that you've maximized you know your medication regimen for them and you don't know what else you can offer that would be the time to refer and so at any point anyone who has this diagnosis if they're not stable on their medicines and still having these these exacerbations or these breakthrough episodes where their lung condition is getting they're getting sick or they're getting kind of getting out of control they need to see someone like you. You talked about some of the other medications that could be tried and some of the things that can be done. There's always hope. Absolutely. And and to be honest, sometimes we, we're all fooled. And so I get sent patients to me who are labeled with asthma or COPD, and I do my pulmonary workup, and I don't find the problem, and it's actually their heart or something else. And that's another really important thing to consider. If you're breathless... It may not just be your lungs. Make sure you get your whole body checked out. Make sure that you're cardiovascularly healthy and your heart's not having stress because those two things really go along close together. So be really careful about that. I'm sure, Justina, you've seen some folks and and had the same situation and said, have you had your heart checked out? Exactly. Uh, Actually, the benefit of our program is that we are a cardiopulmonary rehab clinic. So (laughs) if you do do run into any of those patients, (laughs) yeah, definitely send our way. Yeah, that's right. All right. So for anybody who wants more information on the COPD Education Day, you can go to hawaiicopd.org. 
You can also call or email the COPD Coalition, Valerie at HawaiiCOPD.org. Don't forget, it's Saturday, September 17th, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. I will be there helping to emcee the event, really to just help promote education for those folks who have COPD. All right, if you want to hear this show again, you can click on the links, HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Follow us uh, on the Facebook as well. Our engineer is David Chong, executive producer Beth Ann Kozlovich, Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Woo!